Mindfulness Mode 97. When we experience adversity and are able to turn it into something valuable, that's being in a heightened state of mindfulness. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Thanks so much for joining us here on Mindfulness Mode. To thank you for listening, I'll send you a free copy of my book. I teamed up with author Brian Tracy to create our best-selling book called Cracking the Success Code. You'll learn more about my story and how I became an anti-bullying advocate and mindfulness coach. To get the book free, go to mindfulnessmode.com slash cracking. Enter your name and email and you'll have the book downloaded in no time. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Kim Addis on the line today. Hey, Kim, are you in mindfulness mode? I'm always in mindfulness mode. (laughs) That's good. Kim Addis is an executive coach, a speaker, and writer. Kim uses the powerful tool of journaling to help her clients access their thought patterns and belief systems. It enables them to make the necessary changes they need to reach success. Based on these principles, Kim founded her coaching company called Frame of Mind Coaching. Kim is a regular contributor to several publications, including Forbes and Choice Magazine. She uses mindfulness every day in her own life and to enable her clients. So Kim, tell Mindful Tribe exactly what does mindfulness mean to you? It's an interesting question. For me, mindfulness is really having being in a state of awareness and being conscious of how you feel, how you think, and leveraging that to make really smart decisions for yourself. And part of mindfulness is is really around interpretation. So are you interpreting the world around you in such a way that propels you forward, or are you interpreting the world around you in such a way that really holds you back? That's a big part of it for me. And I know that that's not in the definition. If you were to look it up, it would have nothing to do with interpretation. But for me, that's a huge part of it. It's choosing to interpret what you see in a way that really serves you. And don't you think we change that interpretation from day to day and sometimes even from hour to hour? Um, Sometimes that happens, but sometimes we interpret things the same old way, even if the circumstances and situations are different. Mm. We read things into it that aren't necessarily there. And so we attribute false meaning often uh, much to our detriment. So I don't actually find that our interpretation changes so much. Mm -hmm. I more find that our interpretation remains the same and that often tends to hurt us. And it's based on stories that we've created for ourselves. Is that kind of what you alluded to? Exactly. So, um, you know, 10 different people might experience the same situation and their interpretation would reflect their frame of reference, right? So, and, and that frame of reference doesn't change so easily. Right. So that's why if there are seven witnesses in a courtroom, they could all 
explain a situation that they all observed and they would explain it very, very differently. Is that what, what you would attribute to that? Well, that's that's a great example. And yes, I mean, that that is just such a good example. But yeah, we all see differently. And honestly, um, our vision is based on our past experiences, our upbringing, our values, the messages we've received from people over the years, our failures, our successes, and on and on and on. And that's exactly what I'm talking about when I, I talk about the frame of reference. And so we filter all of our encounters through that frame of reference. And that's why very often our interpretation doesn't always change all that much and my challenge as a coach is to actually look at that frame of reference and 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 in a way push up against it and say is that serving you is that helping you is that getting you to where you want to go and I know that one of the things that you do is you use journaling a lot with your yeah. clients why do you think journaling is a better way to achieve your result so for me, as a coach, so journaling has a, a number of roles to play in the coaching experience. So I'll share some of them. Thanks. On the one side, as a coach, it equips me to provide extraordinary coaching. So I find by and large in the world of coaching, coaches don't know their clients well enough to coach them. And they coach to a great extent with a blindfold on. They don't have enough data. They don't know enough about their clients. They can't pick up patterns because they just don't have access to enough information. So when I coach with my clients, they're journaling every single day for the duration of the coaching period. And so that allows me to really pick up a great deal of information and start to connect the dots and pick up patterns in thoughts, in beliefs, in behaviors, and start to really understand what's driving my client and help them see how their behaviors, their thinking isn't always consistent with their greatest desires. So as a coach, journaling really equips me to deliver extraordinary coaching. The second part of it though is because I'm reading and responding to their journal every day, what's happening is that we're building a very intense and intimate relationship. And for me, it's the relationship that helps the client travel to a new destination. And it's that trust, it's the intimacy, it's the closeness, it's the safe place for the client to completely reveal themselves and that happens through frequency of contact now there's one extra layer to this and that is when a client journals they learn themselves too right they learn who they are they start to pick up their own patterns and they start to become masters of their own thinking and that happens through the journaling process so I know one of the things that you talk about quite a bit is the idea of meditation and in a way journaling is a form of meditation but we can talk about that Okay, well, that's really interesting. So do you suggest a certain structure or do you just say, hey, grab a piece of paper and just start writing? So when we coach people, um, we find that when we give them journaling prompts, so questions to think about, they go to places that they wouldn't necessarily go by themselves. So it's that guided journaling concept that's important. And at the same time, of course, we always give them freedom to go wherever they want, but it's the prompting that's really, really valuable. So that's why everything we do, whether it's one-on-one -on -one coaching or self-guided coaching, we're always providing journaling prompts to really have our clients 
clients think and reflect on things that wouldn't naturally or ordinarily come to them. So it, when we coach people, they are receiving a prompt once a week, and every time they journal, the coach reads and responds to the journal. So there's this back and forth dialogue that exists on a daily basis. When our clients are doing a self-guided journaling program or coaching program, they're receiving a prompt every three days. And why isn't it every day is because we find that thoughts need to germinate. When you're asking yourself a question, sometimes it needs to settle in. Sometimes you need time for reflection. And we want them to take that time and really think through, like, what is my thought on this? What do I really want? Where do I really want to go? And it's not something that we're just asking in passing. It's something that we want truly uh, for people to think about and, uh, and ask themselves deep questions on. So you, you mentioned one-on-one -on -one or self-guided coaching. Can you yep. expand on the differences? Yeah, so one-on-one -on -one coaching is where you would have a coach who is working with you. So uh, we would begin with a 10-week coaching period. There would be a call once a week. Every call would be recorded. And we would ask our clients to listen to the recording so that they can start to become observers of their own thinking. They would hear their language, their tone, the stories they tell, the patterns. They would start to become observant or mindful of how they show up and then in between every call they would be journaling in this online journal and have this ongoing day-to-day -day feedback with their coach so again it's a very intense experience with a live and in-person coach in a self-guided program what happens is that they receive a journaling prompt so they're in a journaling com community where they can share their journals with others if they choose to do that they don't have to but they get a prompt every three days and they start journaling and then twice a month their journal goes to a coach for uh, for the coach to read and review the journal and then once a month they receive an audio that provides them with some personal coaching so it would be cases that are reviewed and I'm the one who does the audio so it would be cases that they could apply and use for themselves so you know lots of cases are pretty universal so I choose universal situations that anybody could listen to and say oh my god that's me or that's my neighbor whatever it is and so it's but it's a, a personally guided program with Without the 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 leadership of a, a coach in the situation I see so Kim how much writing does a person need to do a day is it based on number of words or the amount of time you spend in the process honestly I've seen the range right so I've uh -huh. seen clients who journal five minutes a day uh, and all the way up to you know 10 pages a day and so volume isn't what's important what's really important is thinking about what you think about and thinking about what is my answer to this question what do i really think what do i really believe what do i really what do i really see what is my perspective on this question and your perspective can be responded to or answered in one or two sentences or you know several paragraphs so i'm not length isn't the issue thought is the issue very interesting. So then once you start to see patterns, how do you help to move the person in the direction that they would choose to go? So I'll give you a perfect example. I had a client and when he started with me, one of the questions I asked him was, what's the most important thing in your life? Like, what's your priority? He said, hands down, the single most important thing in my life is my relationship with my wife. Mm -hmm. 
I want our relationship to be intimate, to be close. I want us to be on the same page. I want us to spend valuable time together. That relationship for me is more important than any other relationship, more important than my relationship with my kids, more important than my business, more important than anything. About three weeks later, he wrote in his journal and the journal said, um, I got into a massive fight with my wife. I'm so upset with her. Um, you know, I'm beside myself. Um, I just can't contain it. I went to sleep in the other room. Interesting. Interesting, right? Yeah. Because do you think that sleeping in the other room achieves his greatest priority? I don't think so. I don't think so either. And so what we do is we show people how their behavior and thinking actually very often contradicts the very thing that they want. Right. Right. And all we have to do is show them. And they kind of go, well, gee. And then we have to say, is this actually what you really want? And if it is, you might want to choose a different approach. But we, before we choose a different approach, before we choose a different way of behaving, we've got to think about this differently. And so very often, all we need to do is show people how they're showing up and show people their patterns and then talk about different ways of, of interpreting things that they've interpreted in the past and really become clear about what it is that they want and help them get there. So we're challenging thinking, we're challenging beliefs, we're challenging the way people show up when it simply contradicts the very thing they want. So Kim, can you recall a client that you took on who after you got started, they just simply didn't embrace the act of journaling and you just had a challenge with that? Well, I don't. I mean, again, it's a very different philosophically, it's a different philosophical type of coaching. So if a client doesn't want to journal, the client doesn't want to journal. I'm not going to force them to journal. But at the same time, they're not benefiting nearly as much as a client who journals and who listens to their phone calls. Right. But I'll give you an example. I'm coaching someone now. Um, he's been my client for about five years. And in those five years, he maybe produced 20 journals, which is nothing. Right. And now we're at a point where I feel like he can be making dramatically more progress. And finally, I said, look, you know, here's the deal. I need at least one journal before every call. Otherwise, we're not having a call. And it's simply because I need to be in a situation where I make sure that I'm providing value every single time. And the difference between a coach that has a journal and, and a coach without a journal is a night and day situation, night and day. I can believe it. It's absolutely night and day. So for me, it's not so much the journaling or the lack of journaling that's ever a challenge. It's always the thinking of a client. So I'll give you another example. Years ago, uh, and the reason it's relevant today is because I just heard from this client maybe two days ago. But years ago, I coached this gentleman, and one of his challenges was that he was at odds with his daughter. He got into a massive fight with his daughter and he they stopped talking to each other. And uh, as he proceeded to tell me what happened, it was clear to me that he saw the situation in such a way that was very skewed and didn't really understand the role that he played in creating this distance and this gap with his daughter. And once this kind of explained to him, uh, from her perspective, what she was experiencing, he totally took ownership. But he was resistant at first, right? Because he thought like, hey, I'm right, she's wrong, she's the kid, I'm the adult, she should have done X, Y, and Z, and her reaction was completely inappropriate, and so he held on to his position for a very long time. 
over time I helped him see that actually he played a big part in creating the friction and the tension between them and that it wasn't so shocking that the daughter got into a battle with her father. Right. But so she ended up getting married. She had kids and still didn't talk to her father. And so I coached him through all of that and say, and, you know, the coaching was she can behave the way she uh, she wants to behave. That doesn't mean that it needs to change your behavior. If you are the father, behave like a father. Reach out to her. Send her gifts. Uh, email her. Text her. Tell her you love her. Tell her you care about her. Tell her you want to see her. Even if she never responds. Even if she's mean. It doesn't matter. Be consistent. Be be the dad that you want to be. Well, just the other day, I got a call from him saying, I got together with my daughter. And it was amazing. Like, she gave me a hug. It was just absolutely incredible she showed me the pictures of her children and she you know like I'm just beside myself with happiness and I want to thank you for helping me stay the course what a great story Kim wow that just gives me goosebumps that's fantastic and what's interesting is like I haven't coached him in a while we're still of course close and friends and all that kind of stuff because you kind of become close with your clients when you spend so much intimate time together but at the same time, years later, he still attributes his progress in the relationship with his daughter to what he learned in coaching. So he literally met with his daughter and picked up the phone and called me. Incredible. So I want to go back to your childhood. Did you write a lot as a kid? Well, I used to be like a diary keeper, right? right? So especially in high school, there was a boy I was like madly, crazy, wildly in love with and could never admit to in person, right? Like yes. I was one of those kids. Um, and so I, I definitely, you know, that was a form of journaling. I wrote about it. I wrote about how tormented I was, but yeah. for sure, yes. And so that helped you. And I just want to know if you have a comment on this. I know that kids in school nowadays are not taught cursive writing, and a lot of them don't. I just find that they don't write as much and it doesn't flow as much. I, I mean, the thing is, I have a 14-year-old son, and I know that he's got a lot of creativity, but he'll go to the keyboard of his computer and write some things there. Do you feel there's a difference between the way we express ourselves in cursive writing or through a keyboard or through printing? Okay, so I'm going to give you a task to do, okay? And okay. it's very an interesting task, and for whoever's listening, you can do it also. But the next time you're at a computer, it doesn't matter whether you're writing an email or whether you're writing a short message, a paragraph, a blog, whatever it is that you're writing, speak out loud as you're writing. So let's say your sentence is, yesterday I went to the store. What I want you to do is type it out and with every word, say it out loud. And what you'll find is you don't say yesterday I went to the store. You say yesterday I went to the store. Why? Because your hands don't work as fast as your mind. Right. And so what's happening, whether you're writing with a pen and a paper or writing with a computer, with a keyboard, your mind is actually slowing down in the process of your typing or your writing. And what happens is there's a gap that exists between every word. So your mind already processed it, but your fingers have not. And in that gap is a moment of, of meditation. Now, one of the things that you talk about is this whole concept of mindfulness and meditation and using meditation to calm, you know, like bring you to a state of a more peaceful state. Yes. But when we were born, we weren't taught to meditate. 
right? Like right. it's not in our DNA. We're not conditioned to med- meditate. We don't know how to do it, but we do know how to read and write because we were taught that from a very young age. And so the whole idea here is to leverage what we already know, what we are already good at, to bring it to that calm state. And so journaling, whether you're typing it or writing it in a book, is very therapeutic and allows us to bring bring that heightened state of whatever it is, anxiety, chaos, worry, concern, fear, anger, way down, way down. That is great insight. And I'm really glad I asked you that question, Kim. Yeah, I want to talk about your career in real estate because you were in real estate and I know that you did amazing things to match people up with their skills to, you know, the sales force. Can you tell us about that and how mindfulness may have played a role? Sure. So um, let me explain what that business was. I used to own an assessment company and we used to build simulation based assessments for the purpose of helping companies make better hiring decisions. One of the assessments we built was called the real estate simulator and we sold it to brokers all over North America to help them with their hiring. And so what that did for us is it allowed us to collect uh, a ton of data about what makes a good real estate agent. But the truth is we're doing this for many different industries. The one in in real estate just really took off. Okay. Um, And what happened with that data is we're able to start to examine it and sort out what is it that differentiates top performing agents from other people. And we were able to take that data and that information and compare it to the other sectors we are working in, the other industries and the other positions. And here's what we found, is that no matter what industry it was, no matter what position it was, no matter what region in the country or the world it was, there was one indicator that would help us identify who could be a top performer in any field that was more substantial, more significant than any other factor. And that was a person who had a higher degree of emotional resilience was going to be much more likely to succeed than anyone else. So what is emotional resilience and how does it relate to mindfulness? Emotional resilience is the ability to bounce back from adversity with greater speed and agility and even leverage the adversity. So what's mindfulness? Mindfulness is having a very Um, a a higher level of consciousness about what's happening and choosing to make it mean something valuable. That is fascinating. Right? Yeah. And so when we experience adversity and are able to turn it into something valuable, that's being in a heightened state of mindfulness. Right. Of course it is. That is really fascinating that you're able to find that information out from the data you collected and then you just kind of went from there and you learned and applied what you learned and it just ended up helping so many people. That's right. And that's really where the seed of my business came from, the understanding that, hey, we don't really have to help people reach their goals by helping them make plans and holding them accountable to the plans. What we need to do is help people build their emotional resilience so that they have a belief in their plan. Right. And that's why you're such an expert at what you do with coaching. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Kim, I've worked in bullying prevention for a long time, and I've seen how mindfulness can really make a huge difference in the lives of anyone who is involved in bullying. Do you have a story involving bullying of any kind where mindfulness would have made a difference? 
Well, you know, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you a story that happened to me, and I don't know if mindfulness would have made a difference, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'll tell you the story, and we'll see if we can connect the dots. Great. No one's ever asked me this question quite this way. So um, when I was in grade seven, I grew up in Montreal, and I went to high school in Montreal. High school starts in grade seven, and um, it was lunchtime, and in this particular school at lunch, you kind of walk around the circle, you know, in the hallways, you walk around the circle. And there was this one girl who was walking with a friend who seemed very unusual to me. She was tall. She had very thin, almost, um, you know, like very, very thin hair. And she had a tooth that was missing. She was tall and she, um, she looked like she was a smoker. She was a smoker, you know, and I was very unexposed, you could say, very innocent. And she struck me as being unusual or different, and I kind of looked at her. But she caught me looking at her and uh, cornered me and basically said, what are you looking at? And all of a sudden, before I knew it, there was a whole gang of people around her, and she was prepared to have a fight with me and beat me up. And right, so it's kind of a bit of a bullying situation there, right? And so I was terrified. I didn't, you know, I'm not a fighting kind of person. I didn't want to get into a fight, and I basically said, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't mean anything by it. And I, and I, you know, I didn't, you know, meet her. I didn't say, fine, let's meet outside in the back and let's have a fight. I just basically stood down and because I didn't want to fight with anybody. It wasn't my plan. It wasn't my intention. She just kind of caught my, my, uh, caught my attention and finally somebody said you know leave her alone and 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 the whole thing dissipated but it left a mark on me and I'll tell you what the mark was for the next probably five years of my life I dreamt of her oh wow five years five years and you know on and off of course not every night but mm-hmm. I dreamt of her and the dream was like this that we were on a roller coaster together and she was in the seat beside me and on this roller coaster, I don't know, for some reason, on this roller coaster, you could actually have conversation, right? Um, but on this roller coaster, the conversation went like this. It was about me talking to her about transforming her life and, you know, being a good person and not being a kind of person who smoked and, you know, helping her out. That was my dream, night after night. Oh, wow. So did, did, you know, was mindfulness at play? Honestly, I was 12 years old. I don't think so. Yeah. But it definitely left a profound impact for me in the role that I wanted to have in the world. Right. I mean, it's really, really obvious, you know, looking back now that, you know, you ended up helping people, coaching people, working with people to transform their lives. And that was in your mind very vividly back then. Very much so. And so, you know, your life doesn't always go the way you intend it. You know, I had my own kind of like life and it, you know, it's not like I went from grade, you know, being in grade seven to being a coach the next day, right? That's not how it happened. But you take detours in life. But if you allow yourself to kind of fall into your natural talents, your natural abilities, you end up where you're supposed to be. Right. Well, it's really interesting. Really a great story, Kim. My next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Probably my mom. (laughs) And just uh, in the way that she has raised us and the way she's raised her own, you know, grandchildren and just the way she's taught us to raise our own children. 
How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Um, it helps me deal with any worries, anxieties, fears, disappointments, any of that. Just kind of wipes it away. So tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Sometimes just taking a breath allows you to pivot and remind yourself where you're headed and just be okay with how things are, even if they're not perfect in the moment. Right. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would that be? Um, it's not a book on mindfulness, but it's a book on helping you look at the world through a very interesting and positive lens and helps you reframe your thinking. It's a book called The, uh, the Art of Possibility, and it's written by ben Benjamin Zander, who is the um, conductor for the Phil Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. All right, I'll look forward to checking that book out. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? Okay, I'm going to be biased, but I use Journal Engine for my journaling, and I created it, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you give a person who's new to this idea of mindfulness, and they'd like to start using it in their life? Um, I think that if you think about mindfulness and you just want to bring yourself back to the now and kind of sort out some of the stuff that's bogging you down, journaling is hands down the easiest, simplest, most powerful way to do that, um, especially if you're not used to meditation and if that's something that's hard or strange for you to do. So, Kim, it's been really great talking with you today and understanding a little bit more about how journaling and mindfulness are related and how they can help us. How can we learn more about what you do and maybe connect with you? Best way to do that is frameofmindcoaching.com. And for whoever is listening, I invite you to uh, take an assessment. It's a frame of mind coaching assessment. So it allows you to assess your thinking and understand where you are right now. I find that so many people want to be somewhere else and their uh, response is to start to take massive action. And I would implore anybody who's listening that before you take massive action, Figure out where you are first so that your, your actions are consistent with your deepest desires. And so I, I invite everybody to take that assessment at frameofmindcoaching.com. That's good advice. Well, thank you so much, Kim, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a great opportunity. I appreciate it as well. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.